Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I'm Dale Stenberg, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Dr. Joseph Minnick, and I'll introduce our guest in just a moment. On the eve of the 2020 presidential election, there's a nervous energy that is almost palpable on both the left and the right about the future of this country. Many conservatives worry that a Biden-Harris administration will move the country along a socialistic trajectory and fear that the ideology of wokeism will be baked into our laws. There are concerns about religious liberty, the right to bear arms, not to mention the anxiety over court packing and tinkering with the electoral college. More liberal sorts, by contrast, are afraid that another four years of a Trump-Pence administration will result in the loss of health care coverage for millions of people currently insured under the Affordable Care Act, which they think will be catastrophic given that there is a worldwide pandemic due to the novel co coronavirus. It's also apparent that they fear Roe versus Wade being overturned with the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And this is not to mention concerns over things like racism or dehumanizing immigration policies and Trump's generally divisive personality and rhetoric. At a time like this, Christians begin to really think about the implications of the oft-touted trust God cliche. I admit that I've had to really think about what that means beyond being just a mere platitude I use to help me avoid icky feelings of fear or anxiety. God is indeed sovereign. So before we get into the conversation, and at the expense of being labeled pietistic, I want to tell you folks to trust God with this election. The judge of all the earth will do right, even if your guy loses. Indeed, part of what we'd like to do today is remind ourselves and our listeners what a positive political vision might look like in these divisive times. The election of Donald Trump to the presidency in 2016 unintentionally caused a shift in the Overton window of accepted political discourse. This has been both for ill and for good. On the left and even in some pockets on the right, the language of critical theory shows no signs of abating. On the right, the, discord around, the discourse around things like nationalism and American exceptionalism has been revived among a generation of people that feel the political and moral foundations of their country are being eroded. It's important to remember that none of us come at this uh, circumstance outside of a context. Most of us who have been raised in the church inherited a particular political and cultural lens that directly shapes, even if by reaction, our concerns and emphases. Part of what we'd like to explore today is how conservative politics in the last generation or so are in the process of shifting. But this can be for good and this could be for ill. And so it takes discernment to grasp where a newer conservative movement is a motion towards the good and towards a different form of immaturity. With us today is a gentleman and a dear friend of ours who has thought deeply about conservative political discourse within the last generation. Jake Meter is the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy. His first book, In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World, was published by Intravarsity Press in 2019, and he's working on his second book now, which will also be published by Intervarsity Press. Jake, thank you so much for coming on, brother. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. 
So I guess we could uh, start the conversation with um, asking, what would you say that the conservative options were when we were all coming of age? And what are the various trajectories now? And what would you say are the promising versus perilous of these trajectories? Several big questions there. Um, so I guess, I don't know exactly how old you guys are. I'm gonna be 33 in a few months. And so my earliest political memories are Clinton um, beating H.W. Bush in 92. Um, and so I, I don't remember the Reagan revolution, but I certainly grew up in the world, in Reagan's political world. And so American conservatism in that world um, was kind of the three different groups brought together in this kind of awkward fusion where you had kind of libertarian minded pro-business folks, you had social conservatives and you had foreign policy hawks brought together into the GOP. And um, the election of George W. Bush was kind of the triumph of that fusionist moment. Um, his staff was quite explicit about that was the coalition they wanted to build, they succeeded. Um, and it was reflected in the way that Bush talked. Um, you think about compassionate conservatism that feels like a million miles away today, but that was the way that Bush was trying to approach these things where he wanted to draw in elements of Christian social conservatism into the kind of pro-business um, expansionist GOP. And so, that was where conservatism was for a long time. And then the Bush presidency, especially in the second or second term, um, hit a lot of rocks. And when Obama gets elected in 08, it's a pretty decisive renunciation of that kind of conservatism by the country, I would say. Um, and conservatives have kind of been trying to figure out what the post-fusionist right would look like ever since, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And Trump was very significant in that movement. But the interesting thing is like, if you think back to 2008, um, Mike Huckabee ran as a kind of populist social conservative. Mm. If you think back to 2012, Rick Santorum ran as a populist social conservative. And if I remember right, I think he actually won the Iowa caucus in 2012. So the gestures toward Trumpian policy to the extent that we can talk about such a thing, um, have been there for a while. And then Trump, as you said, kind of blew up the Overton window. And suddenly you had figures like Marco Rubio, who was elected to the party libertarian type, um, giving speeches on common good capitalism at the Catholic University of America, leaning heavily on Catholic social theory, which is very much not libertarian. Mm. So that's kind of where we've been. I think the question is just what is, what does conservatism look like after fusionism? Um, and I guess in my mind, one of the main questions is, is their energy sufficient for it to be something other than um, basically the business class making all of the decisions that matter while the base gets worked up over whatever is on Fox News this week? Um, that's my fear is that the people, the energy gets distracted by lots of things that 
often aren't connected to reality and don't have a lot of practical policy payoffs. And meanwhile, in Washington, the elected officials who are largely bankrolled by libertarian types are just gonna keep passing libertarian style legislation, which has been the story of the Trump administration. Trump ran as this populist and then he's governed as a pretty normie style Reagan Republican. Um, in terms of actual policy, all of the like Twitter stuff is a whole other matter, of course. But in terms of his actual policy, um, what is Donald Trump's signature policy achievement so far? Well, it's passing a tax cut that disproportionately favored the wealthiest Americans. This has been the GOP for 40 years. Um, so I hope there's something after fusionism that is not that, but I don't know if there is. Hmm. Do you see um, do, do you see movements uh, maybe among the I don't want to necessarily say the, like the the policy writing right at this moment, but nevertheless, sort of um, if I could call it this, sort of like the intellectual right toward at least a political vision um, that maybe transcend some of the binaries. You know, I, I mean, you said you're 33, I'm, I'm 38. So my, my, so my earliest political memories aren't a whole lot younger than yours. But when I was a kid, I recall, you know, sort of, sort of America and capitalism and Christianity, you know, mm -hmm. we all read our David Nobel and the big, the big, <laughs> you know, understanding the times mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of the big, the, the big fight was sort of, you know, cultural, you know, sort of the cultural Marxists on one side versus the, the godly capitalists mm -hmm. on the other. Um, mm -hmm. And yet, uh, uh, may, maybe originally kind of heralded by somebody like Christopher Lash, you know, who was in mm -hmm. the 90s, he would have been that conservative who could say, hey, you can, you can be conservative and critical of, of certain streams of capitalism at the same time. And it seems to me that at least among the um, the more kind of intellectual class of the right, that's a more common line these days that you can actually, uh, you find more sort of, I don't want to say right wingers, but people on, who would identify mm -hmm. in some way, broadly speaking on the political right, who are critical of, uh, especially of libertarian policy uh, in the name of the common good, basically a sort of conservative common good politics. And I don't, I don't know how much political purchase that is actually accomplished mm -hmm. on the ground, uh, and yet as a as a kind of um, uh, as a sort of uh, 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 a motif around which people are uniting mm -hmm. in some way as an alternative, uh, at least an alternative vision uh, to what they grew up with. I see that something like that rising, and I wonder if you. If you think, at what stage is that? Is that just sort of a, a conversation among intellectuals at this point? Uh, um, that's a good question. Political movements are weird. Um, you think about like the 2016 campaign on the left and I don't think anybody was expecting when he announced his candidacy that Bernie Sanders would become a defining figure in democratic politics and really transform the agenda of the party in a lot of ways. So it can sometimes be hard to know where a party's gonna be in a couple of years because things can change really fast sometimes. And sometimes the forces of entropy can be really strong as well. Right. Um, so it's hard to predict in terms of when will the intellectual class actually transition into influencing real policy? I have no idea. Um, but I do think there's certainly a 
number of conservative thinkers that are starting to raise questions about the way the GOP has approached markets and corporations um, and workers over the past 40 years. Um, kind of the brainy wing of things would be like the journal American Affairs. Um, mm. But also, I mean, this is the weird thing is that Fox News is arguably the like biggest proponent of this kind of rethink via Tucker Carlson, Tark Carlson's yeah. show. Yeah. Um, he's like, he actually, he did a segment this has been a while ago now, but on what's happened in a small town in Western Nebraska, I'm from Lincoln, so I, I'm not, don't have a ton of familiarity with the Western part of the state, but this smaller town in Western Nebraska, um, Sydney, that had lost um, Cabela's, which was the sporting goods store based out of Sydney, got purchased by Bass Pro, and it had all of these downstream effects on life in Sydney. And Carlson actually had people out in Sydney talking to people about what that was gonna mean for their town. And that would have been unthinkable even probably in 2015 on Fox News, yes. um, let alone in years prior. So there's definitely some interesting things happening. Um, we'll see where it goes. Um, the Probably the things that have Come the closest to actual legislative payoff would be some of the stuff that Josh Hawley has um, gone after with big tech. Um, and he's also proposed some bills concerning predatory landlords um, that are collecting Section 8 housing money and then housing people in unlivable apartments. Um, there's a few other things that he's done that are probably the closest we get to policy. Although even there, his bills as they were written were never gonna come to the floor of the Senate. And so it's hard to say how real it is even at that point. So let me ask you this, Jake. Um, you mentioned sort of uh, the, the, um, <clears throat> the business class and its relationship to workers. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, I just wanna say, so. Jake Meter is endorsing Tucker Carlson 2024. Is that what I'm no, hearing? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> Just making sure. No. <laughs> um, no, Tucker scares me, but he's a major player in American conservatism for better or worse. Sure. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed, if we're talking just about like political discourse and how that Overton window has been shifted with uh, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, there's also been in the corporate world, a shift. Now, maybe this isn't such a dramatic shift, but for the most part, um, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, MLB, all, you know, most of the uh, corporations on, on uh, the S&P 500, well, that's the tech <laughs> side, but they're, they're getting behind what people are calling, you know, the social justice movement. They're endorsing it, maybe in, even sometimes at a bottom line um, cost to them, right? Like they're losing viewers, they're losing revenue. Uh, now, some of that could be contributed to the coronavirus. And I think that that's a legitimate thing to, to state. Uh, but there does seem to be with a large chunk of the country, this feeling of ironically disenfranchisement like these corporations that i'm purchasing amazon and facebook and twitter and google mm -hmm. they don't see me as a conservative 
so this is the irony is that the, I was watching this really cool video the other day explaining some of the shifts in the um, story narratives in movies that are coming out where the margin is now trying to, what they're trying to do in reshaping stories is take the margin and make it the center. But the moment that you make the margin the center of the story, well, then there's another margin. And so there's this constant sort of reorientation to uh, fight against the center, fight against the center of power, whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, and to give a voice to the minorities. And the moment you begin to do that and you take the people in the margins and you bring them into the center of the conversation, well, they must always continue to achieve the status of the margin. Um, and I think that that's what's happening when I look at corporate America, they're sort of reaching out, they're, they're trying to appeal to the margins. And in the process of doing that, it's like, don't you understand your, the, some of the problems with the country? You're actually the one that is, when you manufacture iPhones, um, you <laughs> ship the labor off to China first so you can save money on, on uh, wages and things like that. So um, what is that? Like that, that seems to be a phenomenon that's striking me as almost like yeah. corporate America is committing suicide in the name of progress. And, and we hear terms like, well, they want to be seen as on the right side of history. And that's a particular view of history. And so I'll, I'll stop rambling now, but yeah. I'm going to be very curious, particularly with professional sports, very curious what TV ratings look like once we're past the pandemic, because I think it's really hard to gauge how much TV ratings are being affected um, by political stances when we have this huge variable in play um, and a huge variable that has tons of knockdown effects, such as I'm watching the NBA finals in early October. Um, right, right. right. It's just, it's a totally different time of year. It's different competition for attention. It's different competition on TV. So it's hard for me to say how much it is or isn't affecting them. Um, there was a really interesting column Ross Dow that wrote this summer. He called it the second defeat of Bernie Sanders. And his argument was that what you had in the spring, um, like I, I actually, I was visiting a friend in February when Bernie won by like 40 points in Nevada early in the Dem primaries. And I remember driving with him to this event we were both going to, and we were kind of trying to wrap our minds around a Bernie v. Trump election because it looked mm -hmm. like that's the way it was going. And then a week later, of course, he gets routed in South Carolina. And from there it was on and it was going to be Biden. But Dow that made the case in the column that what happened over the summer is that America's attention was drawn toward a number of non-economic issues, understandably, given all that was in the news. Um, and these were issues that are very easy for corporate America to kind of adopt the right position on mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't cost them anything. Mm. Um, and so suddenly we're not talking about worker treatment in Amazon warehouses or um, stagnating wages or any number of economic issues we might be talking about. We're talking about lots of social issues that are often talked about in a way divorced from class questions. Um, and I think tellingly, who did Biden pick as his VP to run with him? He picked 
a um, senator who checks a lot of boxes in terms of political talent and seems like on paper somebody who should be the future of the party. That's why she was a favorite early on in the Dem primary. Um, but in terms of her actual policy achievements, I, I remember reading so many conservatives freaking out about how progressive she was. And I was like, well, she's progressive on lots of social issues that are gonna spell trouble for us probably, but also Wall Street loves her. And Wall yeah. Street does not love the Bernie Elizabeth Warren wing of the party. Yep. Right. But when, when Biden wanted to pick his VP, he drew from the Wall Street Clintonite wing um, and that seems to be now where the energy of the party is going forward. Um, we'll see what happens as the younger generation rises, but it, I, I do think you're onto something with it. There's a move in corporate America to try and kind of get socially left. Um, the most cynical read being in order to distract everyone from all of the things they're doing economically. Um, yeah, and to I mean, kind that's, of preserve their power for a little bit longer. Yeah, the phrase, yeah, a phrase that's sometimes thrown around is sort of woke capitalism, right? That right, right. Um, yeah, Daryl Paul's used that a lot in first things. Oh, okay. Oh, Daryl yeah. Paul, right? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, yeah. That that, uh, and it's and it's it's interesting to see. And I think what you said, Jake, is quite right. Is that it, in some ways some of this is like you know, Big Mac can always, you uh, know, uh, uh, the, the the Burger King can always wrap its Whopper in a rainbow packaging and it's kind of a, <laughs> right. it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's sort of low hanging fruit that you can do mm -hmm. sort of, but it, uh, in a deeper way, I mean, this is one of the, the areas where there's a lot of, I think, narrative confusion because there's, there's something true about the narrative of sort of the critical theory uh, and the language that kind of gives us wokeness, the philosophical language that bequeaths wokeness to us has a kind of, uh, not not entirely, but somewhat Marxist heritage, and so you get this kind of cultural Marxism narrative, you know, you know, it manifesting through wokeness. But what is very often missed is the the degree to which. Uh, a, a certain kind of capitalist class has a kind of co-belligerency with some of this movement, some of this focus on identity, which is why businesses and government, both of those two, where you see, I mean, this wokeness really hit legislation and hit the ground is in, you know, all the, the sensitivity training sorts of things that you find in most major mm -hmm. corporations and in, the, and in the government world. And a lot of it um, and there's this is not even even uh, certain woke theorists like um, uh, formerly Judith now goes by Jack Halberstam uh, would talk about how there you know would talk about how this is it's very much in the interest of corporate businesses to create endless endless individuation among American classes because that's basically creating endless consumption and endless consumers. And so there's a very odd there's a very odd way in which uh, consumptive practices um, mm -hmm. uh, 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 are, are are sort of on the rise in, in a in a funky sort of way with um, uh, with you know what some people would call something like woke capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so it's what's odd is again is is that the narratives can be confused because even if these categories came from over here, they can be scripted by these co-belligerents over here to a totally yeah, different. Yeah. And in as much as they understand human beings and how they work. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Well, but, there's the line David Brooks had in his column he wrote after Justice Kennedy retired. Um, 
he basically wrote his column about Kennedy kind of being the quintessential American individual in the post-war, post-Reagan world. Um, and mostly because of his, um, the way he's approached a lot of legal cases, most famously Casey, where he said that essential to the right of human liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence of the universe and a bunch of other things. Um, Brooks's response to that is he said, you know, that's a very large homework assignment and (laughs) a lot of people are not going to be up for it. Mm. And what happens to them? Um, I mean, one answer is that they do the best they can to create their identity through their career and through their purchasing. And both of those things work very nicely in favor of the existing capitalist class. Um, she has a new book out called um, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And Anne Helen Peterson talks about this at length in there. Um, millennials were brought up with this idea of n- our work needing to be our passion. It's that inane quote about how if you do what you love, you'll never work another day in your life. Right. Um, what that actually does is it teaches a generation of people that their um meaning their significance as a human person is wrapped up in their work. And that's a very convenient lie for somebody that wants to extract as much value as they possibly can out of workers. Um, And so, yeah, I think you're right that there's some odd alliances forming, which always happens during times of realignment um, where I think you could kind of call it the human resources left, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the capitalist class are finding a lot of common cause um, because they're kind of mutually reinforcing in certain ways. And again, this could change a lot um, as kind of the rising generation of Democrats moves into leadership positions. Because so I, I don't know that these alliances are going to work in the same way if you have the more kind of Bernie bro types Mm. um, or the people that were campaigning with Warren and Sanders during the campaign, if they're the ones driving the party, I don't know how this looks. So it could be a very short term thing where the boomers and Gen X kind of write out their time with this odd alliance um, between the social left and and the capitalist class. So one of the things that, you know, I think is worth talking about, you know, no matter what happens tomorrow, because no matter what happens, some people are going to be very discouraged and some people are going to be happy. A lot of people will be discouraged either way. <laughs> um, but, you know, given all we're discussing, what does what does a positive Christian political vision look like that, uh, and, and I'm kind of piggybacking on something you just said, Jake, I think that appeals to more than sort of classic constituencies. You know, one of the things that I, you know, I'm convicted by, and that I think is true, is that uh, a positive vision of the good uh, just is an attractive thing. And one of the one of the things that I think you see in in contemporary political discourse is actually just not very great visions, a collection of not very great visions that you just have to choose between. But what what might you know? Because I think we need to be thinking about this. Because one one of our problems is that we tend to think of voting, you know, who are you going to vote for for president as the be all and end all of politics or the be all and end all of cultural engagement. And I think that's just, that's just a lie that we need to get around. That's not true. 
uh, who you vote for is a prudential question, especially in a country of 325 million people in 2020, in a global world where everything is complicated. And once you do sort of like, you know, leader of the free world prudential calculus, uh, it turns out that's a big algorithm. Uh, and it's not shocking that people come out on different ends of that algorithm. But that doesn't mean you can't share in some sense a positive political vision that in all sorts of other ways, all sorts of other levels of cultural engagement that we can move toward. And I guess what I'm what I wonder, because I think one of the things our world needs is in fact political vision that recognizes uh, collections of concerns on either sides of our culture wars and says, and just doesn't just dismiss, but actually sees where, what is the lived conditions in which this sets, these sets of concerns become reality and what's a political vision animated by Christ um, that helps us uh, helps us maybe transcend some of these binaries. And that's a, that's a big question, you know, it's sort of like we can't, we're not a, on this podcast going to collect, you know, uh, uh, or maybe we will, uh, <laughs> you know, give the, give the political vision for Christendom, uh, you know, but uh, I guess what are your, you know, your first thoughts? Like what should Christians be thinking about and investing in over the next four years toward the end of healing in a very fractured nation? Um. So I guess there'd be two ways you could answer that. The first is thinking about just in terms of day-to-day -day communal life, what that looks like. And I think it needs to be doing what you can with what you have, where you are, just a huge caveat for all of this as we're yeah. all fatigued and burned out from COVID and all of the other things that have happened this year. Um, but Given that caveat, I would say trying to identify ways in your day-to-day -day life that you can make being neighborly easier is mm -hmm. a big win. Um, Leah Labresco's book, Building the Benedict Option, is excellent on this. Um, regardless of what you think about the Benedict Option, what Leah's book is really doing is it's trying to kind of provide a field manual for building on-the-ground Christian community where you live. And Leah's outstanding at it. Um, she's a New Yorker. She was living in New York, I think, when she wrote it. And so it's written from the perspective of a young New Yorker. And so there's things that won't translate as well to people who live where you have to drive everywhere and where just day-to-day -day life looks very different. But I think the, the habits of mind that you can pick up from reading someone like Leah um, are really valuable. So I'd say a book like that is great. A simple way of thinking about it might be acquiring skills that are useful to neighbors. Um, and so like a practical example, um, when my dad, my dad had a traumatic brain injury a few years ago and mm. they wanted to figure out if he would be able to live at home when he was out of the hospital. And the biggest obstacle to making that happen is they did not have a handicap accessible bathroom in their house. And they'd lived in that house for 31 years. They didn't want to leave. And a bunch of my mom's friends from their old church, they didn't even go to that church anymore, but some friends from their old church um, who are just handymen volunteered their time to build a handicap accessible bathroom for my dad. And so they came over and demoed the downstairs bathroom and back porch and then rebuilt it to make it accessible and mom paid them at their request 
with Diet Mountain Dew and Oreos. (laughs) 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 Because they refused to accept any other form of payment. Um, The reason that all those guys could do that is because they had those skills. Um, Even if I wanted to serve a friend or neighbor in that way, I wouldn't be able to do it because I don't know how to do all those things. Um, Now, on the other hand, I do know how I can cook a lot of things. And so when we have families at church that have a baby, um, I've tried as much as I can to just make it a thing that whenever there's a baby at church, I just smoke a pork butt for that family because you'll get a ton of meat and they can freeze some of it and they can eat some. And it's just a, a simple way to help them to communicate to them that we're excited that you have a new baby. We want to do what we can to support you in that. Um, my pastor loves to say when we have a baptism at church, um, when we all will raise our hands and say we do in response to the congregational vow, Keith will always go, oh, look at all those Sunday school volunteers raising their hands, <laughs> um, which is funny, but it's also a really good way of making the point that there are actually or ought to be practical outworkings of these things that we say we believe. Um, so finding those kind of skills, which could be working on cars or cooking or even just babysitting, um, would be huge blessings to lots of people to whatever extent you can offer it. Um, the other aspect to the answer, I think, is on a policy level, political level, I'm very curious what would happen if, a Republican or conservative Christian group came forward and said, we want to make family policy a priority for our movement going into the 2022 midterms. Um, You actually started to see some gestures toward it early in the Trump administration. Rubio put forward a paid family leave plan um, that was, I think could be supported by a lot of Republicans, the way it was actually gonna be financed was by essentially allowing parents to take social security early as paternity leave. So as budget neutral, because it was money they were already guaranteed by social security. um, And that money would allow them to have paid paternity or paid family leave after they have a kid. And then that just kind of died on the vine um, in the midst of all the craziness of the Trump era. But like if you had a group of conservative Christians that said, we are alarmed by a declining birth rate in America and our birth rate is declining rapidly. Um, I think it's a third of what it was in 1960, if I recall. And even after now the sixties do hell on our birth rate because that's when you get a lot of cheap contraception hitting the market. But even over the last 25 years, our birth rates have collapsed. Um, relative just to the 90s. Um, So if a bunch of conservative Christians said, we believe in families, we believe it should be easier in this country to have children. And so we want to do these three things on a policy level to help families. So maybe it's paid family leave, it's an expanded child benefit. My preference would be just giving money directly to parents, Um, but you could debate how that should work out. And then maybe it's something like we also expand our childcare tax credit so that families can get money to pay for daycare. Or if the parent stays home with the child, the family can get some kind of stipend um, for childcare compensation. Um, I, I wonder what would happen if a Republican Christian conservative came forward with something that robust and they justified it on the grounds that Christianity is a pro-life faith that loves 
families that values children. And it is very hard to raise a family and have children in America right now. We wanna make it easier. Um, the Democrats have tons of things already written out in terms of their family policy that actually has a lot of overlap with this. Um, there's proposals for giving cash to families. There's extensive paid family leave proposals. Um, there'd be things to work out. Like I think the one of the things I would wanna fight on is that the child care credit goes to all parents and not just to parents who um, have their kids in daycare because that I think is an incentive to put the, take the kids out of the home early. But I think there's be ways to work these things out um, in yeah. light of the many areas of agreement. And so I really do wonder if a, I mean, he wouldn't do it because he's such a localist, but if a Ben Sass or a Josh Hawley or a Marco Rubio, someone like that came out with that kind of proposal, or if a major conservative Christian action group came out with those kind of proposals, I don't know what would happen. Maybe relationships are so broken at this point that even that wouldn't go anywhere, but I would think there'd be a lot there that people on the political left would look at and say, yeah, we support that. Let's figure out how to pass it. That's, um, that's right. really interesting because I, one, one of the, one of the, one of the things that frustrates me, I think, in the culture wars, and I've been, uh, I've been, as you probably know, I've been writing about this a little bit lately. I, I have a, a a series on modern reformation that I'll, I'll link to this video for our listeners on the the woke and the red pill. And I've had, <laughs> two two of my two of four articles are out so far. Um, but one of the things I'm really persuaded of that's that's a little bit alarming and kind of depressing in our culture. Uh, is that we, we seem to be under this impression that we have to ideologically agree before we can have a common project. Uh, mm. So it's sort of like all of the fight becomes sort of like, let's fight about wokeism or Trumpism mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But in fact, human beings, like when you think about your relationship with your actual neighbors, that's mostly not how it works. Most of your relationship mm -hmm. of, with your actual neighbors is actually that you just have a very embodied, organic, seedy, right on the ground <laughs> local project where you can build mutual trust and then sort of negotiating your ideological interpretations uh, is something that can then build upon that local trust. And I think what's, what's one of the things that's contributed so much to the fracture in America is first of all, this, this notion, and I think there's a lot behind this, but we tend to think of people as kind of, you know, as one of our mutual friends often has put it in the past, sort of ideologies walking around in sneakers. And so we need to figure out their ideology and then argue about that. And that's where all the practical implications are going to come from. But, you know, I, I think of, um, you know, a film like, uh, if you guys have seen it, American History X, that, you know, which is all about sort of racial tension and whatever. And it's kind of interesting that the Ed Norton character in, in American History X, the moment that it, and I think it's quite a brilliant, uh, quite a brilliant depiction. The moment that Ed Norton actually overcomes his racism in that film is by doing the laundry with an African-American in prison. It's when he actually has to work with somebody, like there's no way he can get around it. He just has to do the thing with another person that's different than him. And it's when he actually is involved organically in an embodied way in a common project that um, his ideas begin to change, his vantage point to be actually begins to change a good bit. 
Uh, and and I, this is why I appreciate some of the things you're saying, Jake, is that a lot of the solution, it seems to me, a lot of what Christians need to emphasize is precisely that kind of communal dimension where you're invested enough in the people that are just around you such that these conversations don't become abstractions about these identities on Facebook, but they become real persons. And I think this is the most, and I use this word quite deliberately, and I don't think I'm being overly dramatic. I think the most demonic thing perhaps about our culture is that we so code people as kind of abstract ideologies that we fail to see the image of God and we fail to see the image of God that can actually be appealed to and spoken to in a local and an embodied way. Um, and, the, and to hear people speak, uh, to hear people speak, you get the impression sometimes that what, what it would require for your political vision to actually be a reality, what it would require for your vision of what it looks like for the culture to be fixed would just wind up being, if I actually take your words to their logical conclusion, it would just wind up being the evaporation of 50% of people that live here. Right. So you wind up wondering, like, are you actually even interested? Like, are you interested in actually having a civilizational project with people that fundamentally disagree with you? Yes. Or are you not? And they're here. It's not like, and, and, and I think what some people could come around and say is, is like, it's not like you have that much of an option either. They're here. <laughs> They're just here. And, and actually, this is one of the reasons, and I'll, I'll shut up after this, but one of the reasons I actually really like, uh, and this is a controversial position, but, you know, I, I've been known to state my controversial position no, loud. <laughs> not you. <laughs> uh, it's one of the reasons I really think the PCA is so interesting. The PCA, Presbyterian, for those who don't know, mm -hmm. Presbyterian Church in America I find it so interesting because it's it's one of the only institutions I'm aware of in in modern civilization in the Western world, where people with wildly different political instincts, wildly different cultural instincts, actually sit down together and try to work through those things. And, and the process of doing that is extremely painful. It's actually hard. You have to have a common project. You have to have that common project. But even with that common project, actually working through largely different impulses and interpretations of the world with others is a very hard thing. But for that very reason, it seems to me the PCA is almost in some ways, and you know, some people would radically disagree with me here and think the PCA is going the way of the dodo. But I think the PCA is actually in some ways a, a great witness to the world, a rebuke to the world in some ways, that people with very strong inclinations in different directions actually can sometimes come together and have dinner together and talk to each other and craft positions and craft documents mm -hmm. um, that really do reflect the pastoral concerns that come from the lived conditions of very different groups of people. And that doesn't mean I'm predicting the, you know, the PCA isn't going right, you know, right, right, to, right. you know, who knows what the future of the PCA is. Yeah. But nevertheless, I think it's a, I, I see it actually as a, a great example of a Christian project actually trying to do the hard, hard work of some kind of cultural reconciliation. Well, I want to, I want to, sort of piggyback on something that Jake said that you alluded to and what you sort of ended with there with uh, the PCA. And that's this focus on sort of like what you have 
in your immediate influence, right? Like, what do I have control mm -hmm. of? I have control of how I treat my wife and how I raise my children and how I treat my neighbors and, you know, the people in Publix when I go pick up flour or whatever, right? <laughs> so we, we have our immediate communities. And that's something that I think, uh, Joe, I think it was you that mentioned uh, Facebook and sort of just looking at people as ideologues, ideologies and sneakers. And we could talk about the technocratic sort of revolution and how that's playing into politics, but we don't have time. Um, but let me, uh, let me offer some, some hypothetical pushback. All right. So yes, I agree that um, change in terms of how we're all um, contributing to the, the great conversation, the discourse around politics right now, first and foremost should be um, uh, tried out in the home and manicured in the church and then sort of distributed in the civil sphere and that's how we sort of mold ourselves. That's how we shape our, the way that we want to talk about relevant things that affects everyone. And that comes down to politics. But there are some political theorists that will say something like, well, that's taking a moral inroad to get at politics. And that's actually to miss the entire point of politics. Politics is not... Uh, an arena in which you signal your virtue. It's not a, a, an arena which you signal the morals that you hold dear to yourself. It's a science. It's a calculated process of give and take. It's more pragmatism than it is principle. Mm -hmm. And so if you bring the principle and you let, the, you let your principles guide all of your uh, rhetoric and all of your um, uh, discourse into the political realm, you're actually not involved in politics anymore. And this is why some will say, therefore, there is no such thing as uh, political theology. There should be political theory. It should be approached from a seed of um, sort of dispassionate uh, aims at trying to achieve a common good. Um, and I know what I would say to those sort of people. It's like, but even in that language, you're hinting at moral categories of good. I, how do we even become to, how, how do we even get to a conclusion of good without first talking about, you know, first principles and, and moral mm -hmm. categories and virtues and things like that. Uh, but what would you say to someone like that, Jake? Like, what would you say to someone that, that, that says, well, listen, sure, community, that's all nice and dandy. You sound very sort of, you know, like you'd be a good neighbor and you have good instincts and you want to take care of people. But that's actually not the aim of politics. Uh, politics is something much more rigid and it's much more pragmatic than it is principled. Um, so I guess my there's several things to say. One of them is that if you enter the work of politics without moral principles standing behind you, you eventually become the dog that catches the fire engine. Um, and hmm. great, you, you got political power. Now, what are you going to do with it? I don't know. Uh, right, right. You, you need to have moral categories that you bring into your politics to help you know what you think you're supposed to accomplish with politics. Um, so I think that is really important. I do think the, the thing for 
or a better version of the critique maybe is to say that politics is a necessary exertion of power to accomplish accomplish certain goods that we failed to achieve through other means and if you refuse to play that game at all then there's certain things you're just not going to be able to accomplish because you need the instrument of government to do it um, in american history the m many of the examples are race concern race um, we did not end slavery in america through neighbors getting together and reflecting on how to be kind to one another. We ended slavery with a war because um, that was sadly to our shame what it took to end it. Um, another example would be the Civil Rights Act. We didn't end Jim Crow in the South um, through Christ well-intentioned Christians getting together to talk about um, the nature of the, the good and true society. We ended it via laws that said certain forms of segregation were no longer legal. Um, but I think that example also points to exactly why it's so important to have moral content that you're bringing into your political work. Um, because it is a very, there's a power um, that comes with political action that is distinctive. Um, there's possibilities um, for those who hold elected office that most of us will not have or will not experience. And if you enter into um, the work of wielding that kind of power and you don't have certain well-defined moral commitments, um, I think your policy could go to really bad places. Um, the other thing, how often do we see somebody, it's kind of they go to Washington looking like Mr. Smith from the classic Jimmy Stewart movie. And sure. then five, 10 years later, you don't recognize them anymore. Yeah. Um, you need that moral formation at minimum to keep that from happening to you. Um, but you also need it so that you actually know what it is you want to accomplish with political power. Yeah. Even, in, even if you were, yeah, even if you kind of, and I, and I don't disagree with this, even if you look at all politics as a, um, as a kind of pragmatic thing, in other words, you're always dealing with lesser of two evils mm -hmm. or, you know, something like that. You're always dealing with kind of concrete things and you're just trying to get mm -hmm. what you can get out of it. Um, you do need some vision of the good to know when mm -hmm. a certain motion is at least approximating the good. At least mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's not everything I'd want, but at least it's one step. Right. But, but to, to define that step as a step toward the good, you have to have that moral vision of the good. Right. I mean, that's the best, that's the best case for Trump is that abortion is a severe enough moral evil and the threats to religious liberty in the U.S. are significant enough that the goods that would be threatened by a democratic presidency are so great that we would need to support um, President Trump. That's not an argument that I go for, but that's the best version of that argument. And it follows precisely from very well-defined moral concerns yes. about yes. the freedom of the church and about the lives of the unborn. Yeah. Well, uh, we're, we're, we're nearly out of time here. I think maybe one last thing to ask, um, you know, or just to, just to briefly talk about amongst the three of us is, 
I guess I, I do want to go back to this this point about um, you know do we actually want uh, do we actually want a civilization with people who disagree with us? Like, are we interested in the hard work and the project of having a civilization with another half of the country who disagrees with our political instincts? Um, uh, and, and I guess one of the things that that bothers me, and I wonder, I guess I guess want you guys to respond to this, is that I, I don't sense a lot of times in conservative political discourse or Christian political discourse a real burning, a real burning for people who are trapped in the kind of ideologies that we often critique. I often see a sort of treatment of the other as though they're kind of this threat, like, oh, look at all our enemies are doing the thing, they're burning down our civilization, and let's let's uh, let's stop them from burning down our civilization. And again, I rarely see that motion that's more like, nevertheless, half of, you know, if I want to look at it as half the country, that's over-exaggerating, perhaps, but if I want to look at half of the country as complicit in some way in burning down civilization, if we wanted to make that argument, but do I burn to? Uh, do I burn in some way to 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 reconcile with them, to be an agent in their world that they recognize as something that's good, uh, uh, an agent in their world that they recognize as uh, uh, healing? Um, and I and I. There, there's something it seems to me that that's lacking in our our relational posture, perhaps, well, toward our ideological enemies, and and that it disturbs me a bit because I because it seems to me like if you don't have that relational posture, if if in as much as I disagree, and especially if I think there's this is a damaging ideology, especially if I think you're driven by an ideology that's bad for you and bad for civilization. Why is it that most of the time the relational posture you see is kind of like, well, <laughs> as opposed to, as opposed to, I hurt for these people, as opposed to like, I'm sad, actually, that you're, there's a sabotaging of your own good, and I love you enough, and I'm your neighbor enough to go into the, your, to go into your life, into your space, to actually fight for your good. Uh, and, and like that's it seems to me like that's how you actually win people and it's just a bit piggybacking on, on last thing I'll say Jake um, you mentioned you know slavery and, and Jim Crow they, they didn't end by you know these kinds of conversations they ended by this legislation I think that's correct but I think you what maybe a modification of that is they did begin to end in that way that is to say, the only way it eventually becomes legislation is that a, a certain number of people have to be persuaded that this is right, and mm -hmm. and that that's where the tr you know all the moral tracks and the slave mm -hmm. narratives and and just discourse saying like, hey guys, this is better actually is mm -hmm. the kind of powerful thing that then is ref you know reflecting again the end mm -hmm. officially is a political movement, but the beginning of that end kind of starts prior. And that's yes. where I think most of us are, is we're, we're on the beginning of the end side rather than the end of the end side. And so I guess I'm throwing that out for you guys to comment. Yeah. Um, were you starting to say something, Dale? Well, I was, I was just going to say, and, and then we'll, Jake can have the last word. How about we'll, we'll leave it to the guest? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Honorable guest. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think that, so I've thought about that too, Joe. Um, and, I, and I believe that what's happening is I think some people on both the left and the right 
are recognizing that in order to get along in a project like what you're talking about, to where we see each other, not just as this enemy that represents all of these policies that I think are going to threaten the way that I live, but like really trying to understand where they're coming from, what their context is, and what are they misunderstanding about the bigger conversation. Uh, there has to be at least the scent of reciprocal sort of energy there, right? Like there has to be some amount of good faith when you're having that conversation that like, I don't need a lot, just a mustard seed. If I can just find a little tiny speck of something that would indicate that my political opponent, for lack of a better term, is willing to engage in genuine, serious, good faith dialogue about really important stuff that's going to affect our great, 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 great grandchildren. Um, then the, the investment of my, my time, which is uh, a, a capital, um, because I could spend it in other spaces, then an investment of my time is worthy. Like that's a worthy investment of my time. What I think we have instead is memes uh, in the very real sense of memes where if you use any buzzword that alerts that you might be charitable towards people on the alt-right, the door just slams shut and there's now no room for discourse with anybody on the left in any meaningful way whatsoever, at least in the, the general mediums that we, that we are having these conversations mm -hmm. through. And then the same thing on the right. If you get a whiff of anybody that sort of gestures towards Antifa-like language or whatever it is, and this is what <laughs> we're talking about, the discourse, then it's like, you're a communist. You know, you, you probably have a, a Marx tattoo on your lower back or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're ushering in the um, utopia. The effect uh, of the public school system, clearly. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. And so... And basically all I'm talking about is a very simple thing that we all recognize is that the what, what we have is a polarization. And what you're asking, Joe, is how do we actually go about as Christians that are peacemakers, right? Yeah. Like this is Sermon on the Mount stuff. Uh, uh, blessed be the, the peacemakers. If we want to be those people in this sort of climate, what does it look like for the future no matter who gets elected tomorrow, no matter if Trump gets in, no matter if uh, yeah. Biden gets in, how do we actually go about inculcating practices and disciplines and curating virtues towards a common political project wherein we stop alienating one another? And if Christ is any indication of what that looks like, it looks a little bit like death. It's hard. Yeah, that's what's yeah. What, I, what I've seen in the piece. That's why I mentioned the PCA. What I've seen in the PCA, when people have these conversations, they cry. Tears are shed. Uh, it's personal to talk about, to really talk about race, you know, to really talk about a lot of these things and really get down be, be beneath the HR, you know, sort of platitudes <laughs> and get to the real nitty gritty. What does this feel like and look like on the ground is hard. Uh, it's painful. It's worth it, but it's a painful conversation. Jake, uh, I guess you get the, what do you think about all this? Um, I guess as I've been listening to you guys, I've thought about a story that's, I think, fairly well known in Lincoln, but probably not outside. Um, so 20 years ago, a 
dear friend of mine was planting a church here in Lincoln. And one Sunday he noticed that there was a young guy smoking outside the door who he had seen in the service. And the guy was kind of fidgety standing around smoking, didn't have an ashtray, like was just there. And so while um, during the week between Sundays, Mike, the pastor, he went out and bought a park bench and an ashtray and set them both outside the door of the church so that that young man, if he came back, would have a place to sit. He'd have a place to put a cigarette when he was done. Um, and to that young guy that told him, you're welcome here. We want you to be here. We want to make it, we want to do what we can to make you feel comfortable and seen. Um, and in time, that guy became a Christian through the ministry of that church, grew in his faith, went off to seminary, came back to Lincoln, and now he's the senior pastor of that church. Oh, praise God. Mm. Um, and here's the thing. Mike took a lot of heat for setting up an ashtray in front of the church front door. <laughs> that was not a universally popular move with the congregation. Um, but he did it because he saw Ben and he knew that if Grace was not gonna be a church for folks like Ben, what were they doing? Mm. Um, and so God's blessed that. And I think that's a really powerful picture. Like if, when I think about people I know that see human beings in the way you guys are describing, like Mike, this pastor is one of the first guys I think of. Um, and so I think recovering that ability to see the person, see the desires, the needs, the pain, um, when we look at our neighbors, that has to be the beginning and it can't end there um, because mm. there's all kinds of complicated things that come after. But if you can't do that, I think it's gonna be really hard to do anything else. Um, I was also reminded as we've been talking, there's a, a quote from Martin Luther that a friend of mine pointed me to one time. This was Luther, I think it was in a sermon, he said it, um, whoever will not be persuaded that he is able to establish a kingdom of heaven on earth or make out of his own home or situation a house or a temple of God is heading toward the devil. For where there is service to God, there is heaven. When I serve my neighbor, I am already in heaven for I am serving God. Hmm. Um, I mean, Luther's just so good on these kind of yeah. really existential day-to-day yeah, right. -day things. But I think if you can see what you're doing in that light, um, it, I hope it becomes easier to be nice to the rude barista or <laughs> to see your obnoxious neighbor in a new way. Um, and it, at minimum, like there, there are things that we will gain from more people learning to do that. And there's a lot of other work to be done, but that is a thing that needs to happen. Um, and so I think being able to look and see um, the person as they are and what they might be um, through Christ mm. is, has to be a starting point.
Yeah. yeah, and to be fair with the barista, she, she was dealing with 20 jerks before you. Exactly. Uh, retails yes. like, you know, a layer of <laughs> right. hell. Oh, no. So, yeah, previous that's exactly. life, I worked at a returns counter at Ikea. So, uh, right, you know. Right. <laughs> no, that's, right. A, that's exactly right. Like, how do, you, how do you treat the person that has no power over you, whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah that's one of the clearest tests of a person's character I can think of. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think if you can have the habits of seeing human beings and uh, Francis Schaeffer has a sermon, no little people. Um, if you can kind of have those habits, I just always go back to Libri because I spent two years or two summers there. And it shaped me very deeply. If you can see people the way they're seen at a place like Libri, you are on your way, um, to borrow from Luther, to establishing a kingdom of heaven on earth. Mm. Well, I don't know a better place to end it than that. Um, we're Jake, thanks so much for coming yeah. on and sharing your wisdom with us. I, yes. I really enjoyed just listening to you. Uh, just lots of insight there. Um, Thank you. Tomorrow there's a uh, tomorrow there's an election in our nation, and uh, uh, the three of us are uh, encouraged that Jesus Christ is our King, uh, and that no matter what happens, uh, we have plenty to do. We have plenty of common projects to build with our neighbors. We have an attractive vision to offer. I think others. Um, you can follow us again on our Facebook page. Uh, there's also a, a, a Facebook group that you can join. Uh, there's also, obviously, you can find this on the YouTube channel. But until then, Dale, love your brother. Love you too, brother. We'll see you all next time.